Hi, it's Melissa Moore. Thank you for joining us for this Sunday morning for Mile High Magazine. Obviously, the biggest story in the country right now is COVID-19, the coronavirus. And with us on the phone is Dr. Jeffrey Mattis. He's a physician, a hematologist, oncologist with Presbyterian St. Luke's Colorado Blood Cancer Center Institute. Good morning. Good morning, Melissa. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, thank you. Uh, Crazy world we're living in right now. It's really unbelievable. Uh, Things are changing so rapidly, everything's just dynamic beyond belief, and uh, and I don't think we can get enough reliable information right now. Is that I was wondering how you felt as a doctor with the information that you're getting, because I mean you're working in a world that is quickly changing, and with people who are getting sick and probably are very scared. Well, fortunately, I I work in a field uh, where we are really accustomed to um, trying to protect our patients from all kinds of infectious problems, and, and I, I can just speak for what we do here at uh, CBCI at Presbyterian St. Luke's, and that's essentially that we're having meetings on a daily basis, and often more than on a daily basis, to make sure that we're up to date on everything that has to do with COVID-19 and the coronavirus, and reviewing our policies and procedures to make sure that we're doing all that we can to protect patients, and not just patients, Melissa, but also our staff. I bet. And I think that's one of the things, you know, as a lot of people are quarantined and working from home, the medical community is not. You're out there on the front lines. That's correct. And, and, and I'm a hematologist. And, and, and when, I, when I think about the front lines for coronavirus, I think about our physicians and advanced practice practitioners who are working in emergency departments, urgent care clinics, primary care clinics, they're the ones that are really on the front line right. out there. And and so we're taking their lead in a lot a lot of ways, and they're the ones that I worry the most about getting infected, my, 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 that is, my colleagues who work in that area. Oh, I'm sure, because everything we keep hearing is how seriously contagious this corona COVID-19 virus is. Um, do you feel like we're taking it seriously enough now as a country? I, I, think, I think we are, and I think we actually got on it relatively quickly. I think, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, we had a lot to learn from what happened in China mm-hmm. and certainly what it, with what happened in Italy, I think, taught us a lot. And when we started to see the first cases show up in our country, and, and by the way, that was inevitable, I think that we did take it very seriously. By we, I mean our Centers for Disease Control, uh, governments at the local, state, and now federal level. I think that we are taking things seriously and not just and not being satisfied with the way we're thinking about the problem today but looking at it each and every day and deciding whether or not our policies and procedures and regulations are appropriate for that time. How do you feel about, you know, there's a whole movement, flatten the curve, uh, self-quarantine. Is that going to be enough to kind of, I guess, tamper out this virus? I think that Again, here I take the lead from Dr. Fauci, who's at the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases at the at National Institutes of Health, and he's been on, you know, he was on all the Sunday talk shows, and he's in the media every day, and, and, and he tells us, and I think um, correctly, that we're going to see more cases, but I think doing the things that we're doing is going to hopefully keep the spike of, of new uh, cases down here in Colorado and, and across the country. Again, it's going to go up, but whatever we can do to limit that, uh, I think will be critical for um, saving lives and keeping people 
from becoming sick and passing the virus on to others. We just keep hearing that it is highly contagious. Give us an idea how highly contagious this virus really is. Well, we 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 know a lot about the, you know the virus you know it's spread by droplets. We know that and droplets that's saliva, nasal secretions, and see and sneezing. And we also note that the virus droplets can remain on hands and surfaces, leading to the exposure uh, exposure to others. And often this can linger for um, even I have to make sure I have this right uh, a longer time than we think. And so mm-hmm. uh, I think that. Uh, that it, it is highly infectious. We know that cases also can pass from individuals who aren't exhibiting symptoms. And that's something that's a little bit frightening as well, because if you think about influenza, for example, you know, people usually think about getting influenza from people who had symptoms of influenza. Right. And that indeed is the way that it works. And this virus is a little bit different in that patients who are carrying the virus and infected with the virus can pass it, again, through sneezing, coughing, etc. Uh, to to patients uh, as well. Now, the other thing I want to mention right now, Melissa, is that we're seeing a fair number of patients who are presenting with symptoms that could absolutely be uh, compatible with coronavirus, and those symptoms are upper respiratory infection, cough, fever, and muscle aches, and we're still diagnosing a fair amount of influenza in the community these days. So I want to point out that just because you have these symptoms doesn't mean if you have them that you have coronavirus infection. You might have influenza, and I think all physicians and clinics, the first thing we do when someone, somebody presents with symptoms that could be uh, that, that are that cough and fever and myalgias, that is muscle aches and so forth, the first thing we do is we test for influenza. Right. Fair amount of influenza in, in Colorado right now. Well, and I think that's an important point to make is that the influenza season is not over, and now the coronavirus, COVID-19, is here on top of it. Here's kind of a qu- crazy question for you. Could somebody present those symptoms and actually be positive for both? Um, the answer is uh, yes, it, it would certainly be possible. There's no immunity that w- having one infection uh, confers versus the opposite infection. Um, that would be a little bit like getting struck by lightning twice, I think. Right. Yeah. Well, I just know I remember years ago I had influenza and then I had pneumonia and it just kept snowballing. And I wondered, yeah. oh, my gosh, could that happen to somebody else where, yes, they test positive for influenza, but should they also ask, hey, also test me for the coronavirus? No, that is not the recommendation. That is absolutely not the recommendation right now. In fact, in fact, most uh, most of the algorithms that we follow uh, when somebody pre- comes to see us and they have fever, upper respiratory infection, and we're suspicious as we test them for influenza first. Mm-hmm. If they have influenza, we stop there and we treat for influenza. Remember, we have a medicine for influenza that can help with the symptoms and shorten the, the length of the symptoms. Right. Only if we're suspicious and their influenza testing is negative do we then consider them for testing for the coronavirus. And let's talk about the testing, because I've heard a lot of complaints that there just aren't enough tests available for the coronavirus. Yeah, it's an issue. Uh, Right now, uh, not everyone who seemingly would need to get a test can get tested just yet. So we're needing to, to actually screen people to be tested. So if you go to the emergency department, then the providers in the emergency department will go through, again, a screening procedure to determine whether or not it's um, that you should be tested for the coronavirus. One thing I'd know is that we don't want to be testing the worried well. Mm-hmm. That is, I wonder if I might have coronavirus. But we want to be testing people 
who have uh, symptoms that could be compatible with coronavirus that we know are not caused by influenza. So it's uh, and and the the decision remaining testing these days is still completely between the patient and their physician, and those that's how the, the the who gets tested is actually determined is in large part by the patient's uh, the patient's physician. Well, I know that an actor in Hollywood, Idris Elba, just came out and said, "Hey, I was exposed on Friday." I got tested yesterday on on Sunday, and even though he's showing no symptoms, he's positive. He said, I feel great. I don't feel like I have anything. And I think that's kind of talking about what you were talking about, about how with this virus, you cannot show any symptoms and still be passing it on. Yeah, but Melissa, it's also important to remember that we think about the median time, that is when half the people have developed symptoms and half have not yet developed symptoms, after exposure is on the order of five days. And so if one did have, if I had an exposure on yesterday, Sunday, or yesterday, if I had exposure yesterday, and I'm fine two days later, that's no guarantee that I'll be fine three, four, five days later. Okay. And so that's why we talk about people who do have exposures quarantine, being quarantined. Okay. Is, if you get exposed and you test positive for COVID-19, will you come down with the symptoms? That's a question I'm not exactly sure of the answer to. And I think that part of the reason for that, Melissa, is that with the limited number of people uh, getting tested, we don't know all that we would like to know about, you know, what percent of people, for example, who do get exposed develop symptoms. What's the, um, and what's the severity of those symptoms? Are there people who get asymptomatic infections Mm -hmm. and then go on to develop immunity to it without ever getting really sick. Also, why do some people get a lot severe symptoms, you know, the older or the more infirm, and other um, uh, people such as younger patients uh, seem, seemingly don't get very severe infections at all from the COVID vi- COVID-19 virus. So um, there's a lot yet to be learned, in my opinion, about this virus. And I w- also want to tell you guys, that I'm a hematologist. I'm not an infectious, an infectious disease specialist. And so some of these questions I would Uh, turn around and ask my infectious disease colleagues for more thoughts about those. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the fact that you were just talking about there are a group of folks, the older community, 70 and over, they're saying, hey, you need to self-quarantine. How come? Why do you think that is? Just that that the the severity of the infection is, is markedly increased the older the patient and the the more other health problems that they have. So if you look at up in in the Seattle area in Kirkland, Washington, where they had a a, um, number of deaths out of one of the the long-term care facilities, those are patients who are likely to be older, uh, more infirm, less active, and those are the patients who particularly seem to be having a higher chance of getting really ill with this virus. Well, and I know that so many states, including our own, they're saying, hey, you cannot go into retirement homes. You cannot go into those assisted living facilities and, and visit anyone because we want to protect our patients. Yeah, and I think that's wise. I mean, I can just speak to, I have a mother-in-law who is um, approaching 90, who's in um, uh, you know a care facility and, and all I can think about is how horrible that would be if somehow the virus made it into her place, right? Right. And and on the other hand, it's really it's really difficult because 
we are restricting uh, visitors to the people who really need them the most, right? Our our uh, our older uh, our older folks in in care facilities, and so it just speaks to how difficult these times are for us all. Yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. Um, a question I want to ask you: the the mask, the gloves. How necessary are they, and do they really work at preventing this? Well, there are masks, and there are masks. And so obviously for patients, for, for, for care providers who are taking care of patients with, with infections, there's a whole um, degree of personal protective equipment that has to be worn, including very special masks. And these are not the yellow masks that you see in airports and on trains and on airplanes. Uh, these are very special masks, and they work, they work very well. Uh, and the ma- other masks that we wear, uh, I think that, you know, they, they, they're, they're made to work for shorter periods of time. After mm-hmm. a certain number of hours, they lose their uh, protective ability. Um, and I think that all of us are interested to do whatever we can do to prevent infection. And I would say, if you think about on the scale of things, what's the most effective strategy if I have you know, am I trying to protect someone else from me or protect me from somebody else? Mm-hmm. If I'm trying to protect somebody from my symptoms, I shouldn't be out there. Right. And no no mask is going to make that difference. If I'm trying to protect myself, I'm not sure how much a standard mask after a little bit of time does to protect us, to be honest. Right. Regarding the hands, by far, far, far and away for our hands, the most important thing to do is to wash them regularly with warm soap, I'm sorry, warm water and soap for 20 seconds several times a day. And I've heard Dr. Fauci say, you'll know you're doing a good job if your hands are dry and chapped. Okay, well, then I feel like a lot of us are doing it, especially here in Colorado. It's like, I don't feel like I could wash my hands much more than I am right now. And I do think it's interesting, too, how I always felt like I was a good hand washer. And I think a lot of people did. And the guidelines come out, and I'm like, okay, I'm looking at it kind of at a, in a clinical way at this point. I feel like I'm almost a doctor washing up to my elbows. Yeah, we, we used to... Um uh, when we we're washing our hands before operations and so forth, uh, wash your hands long enough to see old McDonald had a, had a farm. And if you make it through that, washing your hands, you'd, you'd done a good job. All right. I think that's good. We can teach our kids that one. <laughs> um, let's also talk about, you were talking, we talked about the older population, but what about for people with compromised immune systems, maybe cancer survivors uh, and they're on medications? Yeah. I mean, what's, what about that? Yeah, so this is this is where you know this affects our practice. Not naturally, all the patients who are being seen at other places who take care of cancer patients, and and immediately here at Colorado Blood Cancer Institute at PSL, we adopted very very stringent what we think are good protective measures uh, for our patients. And so, in our clinic, we're we're you know we're screening patients who uh, who come in. We're limiting the number of. Uh, of caregivers or family members who can come into the clinic and they're being screened also we're limiting points of access in our clinic and and if patients are have any symptoms and they're directed away from the clinic uh, to for example the emergency department in our hospital we've taken a very difficult approach of, of of very severely limiting visitors and caregivers because our patients are in the hospital undergoing bone marrow transplants or being treated for leukemia for example are the most vulnerable of all mm-hmm. the patients out there right now. So we've been extremely conservative in that way. We've also instituted guidelines uh, for the caregivers 
from the people who clean the rooms or deliver the food to the nurses at the bedside and the nurse practitioners, physician assistants, and, and physicians to make sure that, that we are not ill when we're taking care of these patients. We've also looked at some of our patients and, and asked the question, uh, if you're doing okay, do you need to come to clinic? Mm-hmm. And can we do your, if we have your blood tests, can we do a visit uh, WebEx or over the telephone? And so we've looked at that as well. So here at our practice, you know, we service a very large geographic area. We have physicians who go to eastern Montana, Wyoming, throughout the state of Colorado, northern New Mexico, uh, and so forth. And, and we've looked at uh, converting many of those visits to telemedicine or web access as well to try to just limit contacts. I think, Melissa, that these next several weeks are really critical not just here in Colorado, but across our country and even in the world, to see if we can, as you said, flatten the curve by taking some very conservative measures. And for no one um, are these measures more important than for our patients who have compromised immune systems. Right, absolutely. And not all those patients are in the hospital. There may be people at home that are going out to the grocery store who just need something that have the compromised immune system. What would you say to them? Yeah, I had this conversation this, this, this morning with a patient, and, and it all depends on how compromised the immune system is. If they're, you know, pretty close to, you know, in good shape, I'll say, you know, go off hours, uh, throw some gloves on, um, get in, get out, just get the normal stuff, make sure you wipe everything down in the carts. Um, but you can also get, you know, you can get groceries delivered. Mm-hmm. You can send other people. There are all kinds of volunteer services that are helping out right now. Um, not to brag about my daughter, but my daughter lives in Washington, D.C., and she's gone shopping for um, older people where she lives to get them food. Um, it's, it's, it's a time to call in favors, I think. And I think that one thing about our country in general is that when, when, when we're challenged, uh, people step up to the plate. And I think that if you're out there and you have a compromised immune system and you need some help getting some things, all you have to do is ask. Well, and I think that's an important point right there. Ask for help. You know, even if you don't have family nearby, anything else. I know on my neighborhood's next door app that I check a lot, a lot of people are posting on there. If you're elderly, you can write me a check. I will bring you groceries. I'll leave them on the front steps for you. Stay in your house. Yep. And I do think you're right. This is a time for us to rise up and really come together. Let this, it may not be feel like a positive thing, but maybe try to get something positive out of it. I think that's a really important point, Melissa, and also because there are there's so much anxiety around the uncertainty of, of where we're going with the coronavirus pandemic here. And I think that when there's uncertainty, um, again, panic, fear, those things come up. And I think that the more we can do to make people not fear and not feel so panicked, the better we'll all be. And I think that's going to be people leading leading by example. I would agree with you. And isn't it true? I mean, stress puts a big, um, what should I say? It puts a stressor on your immune system. When you're under stress, your immune system's compromised, right? It, it, that's hard to quantify, but it, that, that is the case. But I have to say, for our patients, our patients, I think, are just knowing that there's a plan, that, that, that people in the, in the community from government through healthcare are thinking about this in a very thoughtful matter, they're extremely reassured by that. Mm. So you're not feeling the panic from your patients when they're coming in? Not at all. 
what are what kinds of things are you hearing or what kinds of questions are you getting asked? So the most common questions that, that we get from patients, there, there are actually several, but probably the most common one is, can I do this or can I do that? You know, which is, you know, a week ago is, can I go to the theater or can mm-hmm. I... I have a flight to Arizona. I had one patient, this is a true story, say they had a cruise <laughs> leaving from Venice, Italy. Oh, my gosh. That, that, that was an easy one. Uh, yeah, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, that was, they'd already actually already canceled, had canceled it. But they're, they're mostly, what can I do? Mm-hmm. Patients who are doing better, it's do I need to be seen now or can I, uh, can I postpone my visit? And, on a, and for us, one of the more difficult issues are for people who are on chemotherapy treatments are, you know, what, do I you know, keep coming in and getting those? And the answer is yes, uh, you do that. We have patients who we do a number of uh, uh, bone marrow and stem cell transplants here at CBCI at PSL. And for those transplants, we're looking to see, you know, is this something that is urgent and needs to be done right away or can it be delayed a little bit? So we're having all kinds of conversations like that with our patients. So when somebody asks you, hey, I'm in the middle of chemo, do I keep it up? You say yes, you need to. Absolutely. Because if they're on chemotherapy, certainly in the blood cancers, um, it, this isn't the sort of thing that you can start and stop um, and and still be in the same place. So you just have to trust if you're on chemotherapy that your 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 providers are taking every precaution they can take. And then, of course, the patients have to be uh, you know, wise in their decision-making as well about limiting their risk exposure. Tell me a little bit about the COVID-19 incubation period. So, Melissa, the median incubation time is about 5.1 days, and 97.5% of those who develop symptoms do so within 11 and a half days of infection. Okay. So that 14-day self-quarantine, that's a fair number that. then? Yeah, that should cover that. Okay. Talk to me a little bit about the vaccine and the fact that they're saying it could be quite a while before we see one. Yeah, vaccine development is, is not as easy as we wish it were. And so vaccine de- there are different types of vaccines that can be developed to fight any uh, a particular viral infection. And, and there is e- incredible, incredible work, as you might imagine, around the globe in trying to develop a vaccine. Mm-hmm. And so when one develops a vaccine, there are a number of questions that need to be asked. And, and one is, will it, will it result in the patient um, getting immunity against the infection, right? Well, does that work? But also, right. is it safe? And so you, so you have to develop the vaccine. You have to show that it's safe, giving it to normal individuals. And then once you develop, show that it's safe, then you have to ask whether or not it's, do, it's doing what we intend it to do. And then only after we have that information can we look into trying to get the vaccines approved. So usually it's a several-month process, and that's at breakneck speed right. for trying to develop a vaccine for anything. So I don't, I don't anticipate a vaccine anytime soon. I did see something on the TV the other day about someone who's trying to get, get what's called um, passive antibody transfer, that is to try and develop antibodies which isn't the same as the vaccine, mm-hmm. and, and, and develop antibodies against the virus and be able to produce those and infuse those into patients, but I have no idea where that's going. Uh, there's a, just a lot of activity out there. I'm very confident we'll get a vaccine. I'm very confident we'll get a vaccine that works very well, uh, but it's not going to be for several months. Well, and I, I saw today during President Trump's press conference, he was kind of saying that we may not be back to normal until later this summer. 
Yeah, that's a that's a big who knows. We just don't know the answer to that, Melissa, and that's the scary part of it, right? A lot of a lot of infections that we have with so-called seasonal viruses, once it warms up, mm-hmm. we start they start to tail off and we start to do better. But I hope this happens with the coronavirus, but we don't know that, and so I think that we should be prepared for a longer battle with this virus than any of us would ever want. Right. I think it's a, such a whole new world, and most of us have no idea what to do with it. No, but we do have, we don't know, but there are really, really smart people out there who are thinking long and hard about this, and I have a lot of confidence that our scientific community is going to get us where we need to go. And it sounds like you've got confidence in our scientific community that we will get there. I sure do. I think we have good scientific leadership at the Centers for Disease Control, at academic centers around the world, Dr. Fauci's leadership, and I think we just need to take their lead and uh, listen to them, and and I think that we will mitigate to a large extent um, as much damage as possible from this virus. I think one of the things that I've heard so many people talk about is, okay, like you were just mentioning a a few seconds ago, let's say we get to the warmer months, it starts tapering off. Does that mean it could spike back up once winter hits again, kind of like influenza? That's a good question. That's a good question. And uh, But one would hope that once we still the pandemic, uh, that we can develop a, a vaccine, right, and mm-hmm. vaccinate people. And I mean, think about what history has taught us for smallpox, for example. Right. You know, and and so yeah, but it's it's you're right. There's this is a time that that I've never seen anything like this occur, certainly in in my lifetime. And and it's hard to even to draw any parallels between what's going on right now and. And what happened in the past, people talk about the Spanish flu from 1918 and so forth. And, you know, is this like plague or back in the, right. you know, back in those days? But it's it's like nothing we've ever seen. But fortunately, we've got science and technology um, and a lot of resources being poured that way right now. And hopefully that'll be that'll be a good answer for all of us. Yeah, I hope so, too. Did you ever think you would see something like this in your lifetime? It never crossed my mind. And even, I have to say, even when I watched what was going on in China a little bit, uh, I, I certainly did not appreciate the fact that it could spread so rapidly around the globe uh, and cause the, the type of, you know, wreck the type of havoc that it's causing, you know, in Italy and other places in our country since. And I sure um, didn't even conceive of that. I'm sure others did, but... I personally did not. I I think a lot of people have been, including myself, have been surprised at how rapidly our world has changed. Yes, it's truly an international place, isn't it? I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, you you can start with a a market in China and end up where we have a global pandemic, right? It's These are interesting times. Yeah, definitely so. Well, before we go, uh, for folks who are still maybe a little bit worried about it, what would you tell them as far as, hey, here are things you can do. Here are things within your control. Do these and don't panic, I would guess. Yeah, so absolutely. And the other thing is is that most of us have um, the ability to go online. And there is a coronavirus uh, disease website, okay? Uh, and and I would just counsel, and it's maintained by the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, 
and, and I would just visit that on a regular basis. And if you're used to using Google or another search engine, you just type in coronavirus CDC, um, and it'll bring up everything. And, and they're keeping that website way up to date. I'm looking at it right now. It talks about um, how to protect yourself, what you do if you think you're sick, what are the symptoms, what are resources, what are cases doing in the country. And now right now at the very top of that website, now we're speaking uh, on the 16th of March. It talks about uh, the President's Coronavirus Guidelines for America, 15 days to slow the spread of COVID-19, um, and has a link there. So that's where I would go for my information. Um, if, you're, if you think you might have symptoms, you should call your physician at all and ask for guidance from your, from your physician. So don't just go in there. Call them first. Uh, yes. I'd say the, the only exception to that would be if you have uh, fever, muscle aches, bad upper respiratory infection, you should go to an emergency department. Okay. And warn them as you come in with what you may think you have. Yes. And all emergency departments these days, I'm going to think, are going to be set up to deal with people who come in with those symptoms and triage them in an appropriate fashion. And once again, one thing we keep taking away is just how important hand washing is. It's probably, you know, it's, if you think about the things that we can do individually, besides helping, helping others who need help, I would say what we, what we can do is we can practice um, uh, appropriate isolation uh, from others. We can self-quarantine if we fall into the category of those who should self-quarantine. And we should do very vigorous and regular hand washing. All right. Well, Dr. Mattis, physician, hematologist, oncologist with Presbyterian St. Luke's Colorado Blood Cancer Institute, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Melissa. And again, just refer your listeners to the CDC uh, coronavirus website for the most up-to-date information. Absolutely. We will have that there on the station's website, too, so you can go right there. And if you want to, you can always share this as a podcast on your social media. We're going to switch gears a little bit here for the second half of Mile High Magazine. But, you know, I think all of us, as we're kind of in this quarantine together, we're learning so much about each other. One of the things I had not really thought about too much until talking to Sabrina, who's going to be my next guest here in just a second, was how eating disorders and how folks who are dealing with those right now and being isolated, being at home, going to the grocery store, the stress and all of that and how the virus is affecting them and then not being able to get out for support groups. We're going to tackle all of that. So please welcome with me Sabrina Skanga. She is the program director of the Eating Disorder Foundation. Foundation. Sabrina, thank you for being with me today. Thanks, Melissa. Happy to happy to be on. Well, yeah, I guess you're not here in person like we thought you might be, but everything has kind of changed a little bit in our world. So let's talk yeah. about eating disorders, and we'll talk a little bit more about how folks can get help, too, if they're home right now and still needing that. Um, let's really kind of define, because eating disorders have changed a lot since I was a teenager. It used to be just bulimia mm-hmm. and anorexia nervosa and that's not the case anymore no it's not and I think it's one of those pieces where people can get really confused and, and discouraged about the misinformation um, and, and it is really confusing there's a lot of terms out there that um, when I'm always introducing people to eating disorders I like to say you don't have to be an expert and you don't have to understand all of the terminology I think that the most important thing to know is that this is a very real illness and a lot of people struggle with it 
Um, and we do have diagnosable terms that help us in the recovery field and, and in the helping field. Um, anorexia nervosa that you said, bulimia mm-hmm. nervosa, uh, binge eating disorder, but there's also others. There's, um, there's something called ARFID, which is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. Um, and then EDNOS, which is eating disorders not otherwise specified. And, and those, that last one really, it broadens so much that so many people fit into those categories instead of, you know, hey, I don't meet all these criteria, so I don't have an eating disorder, so I don't need help. Um, so a lot, we're learning so much all the time about how many people are affected with their relationship between their body and food. Um, and, and just that everyone that has some kind of struggle around that is very deserving of, of being able to talk about it without shame and, um, and at least know that there are resources and places and people that understand that this is a very real um, and serious illness. So what would you say then would be the new definition of an eating disorder? Did you just say it where it's an unhealthy relationship with our body and food? Is that really kind of what defines it these days? It, that's a good start um, to, you know, to have, to, to say it more clearly, um, it really is a severe experience and a disturbance with eating behaviors related to our emotions. So it's sort of, if, if you can think about, um, some, sometimes we all develop different behaviors of how to cope with the environment around us. And, and this is a really good example, the time that we're in right now, mm-hmm. um, where we, where a lot of us don't, we're changing and we didn't really have time to prepare for it. We didn't see it coming. Um, so an Ill, a, a mental health illness, such as an eating disorder, it has a few different th- components that go into it. There is a biological piece um, that it involves our genes. So if we're predisposed to having, um, having some issues uh, in our family history with mental health illness, we're more likely to develop something. Um, but it's not just that alone that's going to mean we're going we're gonna to struggle with the same thing that someone in our family might have. Um, it, it, it also involves our environment that we were raised in. What experiences have we had? Um, what tools have we been given and what, have, what has been modeled around us uh, to show us how do we deal with things? How do we, how do we process the external environment internally? Um, so that's a huge piece of our, our psychological being. Um, and then taking those, taking our genetic piece um, and our psychological piece, the, the culture around us really just heightens and expedites those things that are internal for us. So um, a good way to think about this is like the a biological genetic component, a psychological um, kind of our personality component sort of kind of loads the gun and then the the culture and, and society around us really fires it off. Um, a lot of a lot of us know what a diet is. That right. that doesn't even right seem like a term that we have to ask questions about. Um, but if we're talking about someone who's struggling with a mental illness, such as an eating disorder, and then we add on our, our the weight bias that our culture experiences and the diet culture that we have, it sort of just um, it sort of heightens everything, and it sort of allows someone who has a is struggling with an eating disorder to say, oh, like, yeah, this is the truth. Everyone around me is validating that I that I should lose weight mm-hmm. and, and that if I do lose weight, then it's actually going to mean that I'm a better person. That self-worth really does get tied into the weight when you're not in a healthy mindset. Yes, yes. 
And so it feels confusing. And, you know, as we talk about this, this is where all, a lot of the shame comes from, too. Right. Um, a lot of one thing that we know and, and research has shown us is a lot of people who struggle with eating disorders have similar temperaments. Um, and they, they tend to be kind of people pleasers, people who don't really want to stir the pot, who are not looking for confrontation um, and can have really solid uh solid skills and, and personality traits such as being really focused, really detail-oriented, um, very driven, very capable and intelligent. But the flip side to, to that coin and all of those strengths can mean a very a very rigid personality, mm-hmm. um, a, a personality that's not very flexible and willing to, to say, oh, gosh, okay, I'm meeting a person who I disagree with. Um, something, but that's okay. We can still have a conversation, not, you know, oh God, I need to avoid having any kind of harmful conversation because I don't know how to be in that kind of environment. It actually physically feels unsafe to me. So I'm going to avoid it. So then that person feeling unsafe, what kind of environment does that create then? Um, And then we end up kind of in this really rigid way of living where I just need to be kind of protecting myself um, and I don't and I can't really break out of those lines. Um, and that can that can be really dangerous. So where does the food tie into that dynamic? Because you're describing somebody who is probably very successful in life, type A personality, rigid, you yeah. know, probably employers love them. So where does the food and and that bad relationship with the food and the body image and all of that, where does that tie in? Yeah. That's such a good question. And, you know, it's really hard to scientifically explain that. I, I don't think any of us in the field um, can really sum that up in one sentence. But it's it. what I like to share is is food becomes a, a tool around us that is easy that we're easily able to to decide how we want to um, how we want it to be related in our lives. So our emotions and food are so closely related um, for one thing, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a tool and it is something that all of us have to use as human beings. Um, none of us can, can set it aside and, and, and walk away from it. Um, we have to have some kind of relationship with it. Um, and so much of having an eating disorder and being in eating disorder recovery is looking at relationships um, and sort of communicating. So imagine how do I emotionally um, connect with food? Is it is it something that provides um, con- a time for me to sit with friends and connect with people? Um, and, you know, do I do I connect with food as it's hey, this is nourishment to me, and I, I can relate to that and understand that. And so sometimes when when people who haven't really developed the skills of how to take care of their emotions, how to express them, you know, is it safe for me to feel angry? Is it safe for me to feel sad or or lonely or anxious? Um, And if it isn't, then where else might that come out? Mm -hmm. And a lot of a lot for a lot of people who struggle with eating disorders, it's either in I'm going to restrict as much as I can because that gives me some safety and control around a piece in my life. Um, and oftentimes it's not something that other people can really interrupt. Um, of course, there are exceptions. You know, if a person, any any age, any person can have an eating disorder and struggle. So if someone's a, a teenager and they're at home, they don't really have a lot of say into what foods are in the house and 
you know, and, and where, where they might get their next meal. Um, but what they, what they can do is say, well, I, I can control how much of it I'm going to eat or how I'm going to do it. And then these sort of really interesting behaviors kind of develop out of that. And for each person, it's a little bit unique because there's lots of different behaviors that people have, but it's that same factor of I'm going to, I'm going to manipulate and have a bit of control over this piece in my life. And so as we as we were talking about it, you're saying that all stems from not being able to emotionally deal with those issues and not learning that as a child. Right. Yes. So there's pieces of education in there. And I want to say there really is no blame in this. A lot of in the past, there's been some kind of really unfortunate misdirection of like, well, then it must be the parents' fault if mm-hmm. they weren't able to show them how to do this, right? Um, and it that is like absolutely not the case. So of, of all caregivers and, and, and parents um, and including individuals themselves that are struggling, it's no one's fault. It's not your fault. Um, the the best thing that you can do is, is kind of recognize, okay, there's, there's some kind of imbalance um, and inflexibility in myself or in my loved one's relationship with food. Um, perhaps now we can we can talk about it more um, and then introduce, oh gosh, maybe we could get a little more detailed in what do we do at mealtimes and mm-hmm. how present are we around this? Um, you know, are we in this really fast world that we live in? Are we just, you know, food becomes just a really quick necessity, Um and then we sort of lose the meaning around how it can actually connect with our emotion as well, not just feeding us for fuel, um, but feeding us for, for emotional connection. And if you're just joining me, I'm talking with Sabrina Skanga. She's the program director of the Eating Disorder Foundation. Sabrina, I think most of us have had that time where you're like, oh, I had a bad day and I ate a whole bunch of ice cream. And then the next day you went on. So what's the difference between having a bad day and maybe maybe emotionally abusing food once versus actually having an eating disorder and having a problem. Yeah. I mean, yes, we all, I think it's so normal for us to eat at some point in our lives to, you know, eat past that feeling of fullness. And that is not having an eating disorder. That is okay. Um, I think one of the things that every human being can ask themselves and really check in and understand is, and are, are, the, are the ideas and thoughts of food and my body really consuming, consuming my day to day? Is it getting in the way of me reading a book, of me talking with my family, of me, you know, stretching or doing something that I actually love to do and feels nurturing to me? Um, the difference is where it becomes a thought that we don't actually want to have. It's now intrusive. Um, and it's not just sort of that sort of fleeting um, acknowledgement of, oh, gosh, I, I had too, you know, too many bites of, of ice cream. Um, but gosh, it was really fantastic. And mm-hmm. I'm okay. And I know in 30 minutes, I'm going to be okay. Right. You know, I don't, I don't need to punish myself for this. Um that's another thing as well. Like there's this kind of connection of morality with what we eat in our, in our culture. Um, You know, and just because I I eat something um, and it might not be quote unquote 
organic vegan or whatever label it is that is like kind of a diet fad or or what's in right now like I should not be ashamed um, that I've just fueled myself. So it's that shame piece again that kind of circles and comes back here when it's an eating disorder when there's something not healthy going on in the brain. Yeah right. Oh, so tell me this, you know, you, you were just talking about how we can kind of monitor our own eating and how we can recognize when we have a problem for parents of young kids, parents of teenagers, what are some red flags that they are having issues with food in their body? Yeah, I think one of the, you know, one of the really first excellent things to know is that if you're close to someone, you're you're most likely to be able to to point these things out. Um, people who who are developing their eating disorder kind of understand that that it's strange and and really are are tempted to hide it. Um, so looking for things such as a, a change in how that person is really talking about food, talking about their body. Um, are they making comments like, "Oh, I should lose weight," or someone at school called me, you know, fat and, and like, okay, how does that, how do you feel about that? Like, what did that mean to you? Um, Letting, letting some space um, around body and around food um, to kind of explore that to see, okay, is it a, is it a, is it a topic that we can talk about? Or is it a topic that like seems almost like it's causing anxiety? Um, it really changes mood. I think that that's another good thing to look for. Um, also can be completely normal, especially for teens um, and even lots of us adults. Like, uh, you know, it's okay to have emotions, but being malnourished or um, having such a, such a disruptance in a, um, in a good um, kind of s- smooth scheduled, uh, you know, having a, a good um, meal schedule, mm-hmm. um, it can really cause people to be like unable to focus, to be moody. Um, those can be really clear signs as well. Some more, some more um, kind of things to look for directly around behaviors are hiding food, um, skipping meals, um, restricting whole food groups. So. You know, if someone's choosing, if, especially if someone at a young age is choosing to get rid of an entire food group um, without, with the exception of reasons of allergies, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, asking why, what's the purpose of wanting to take meat out of your whole diet? Um, is it a sustainable plan? Um, so things like that, um, going to the bathroom after meals, um, you know, one of the one of the most common um behaviors for bulimia is to kind of compensate in some in some way after um, in taking food and so kind of um, just being aware around mealtimes what the what the feeling is um, and, and what actions are being taken. Right. And Sabrina, I know that, you know, here we are talking about eating disorders during this pandemic that's going on around the world right now. Why is this important to still have this conversation? I mean, this is such a unique time. Um, people are at home, and especially for those who are in recovery, um, who are working really hard, that have set and, and put in place um, schedules for themselves to to stay on top of. And a lot of recovery and eating disorder life is 
it's very multifaceted because it touches it touches everything in every in their lives. Um, it includes okay, how am I going to prepare for meals? Um, what am I going to have in the pantry? You know, how do, how does that even make me feel? Um, having a lot of food in the house, or you know, where I'm used to going out or doing something different, or having the support of of people to eat with. Um, We're now at home. Some of us are with our family members and we're together more often than we're used to. And and having an an illness such as an eating disorder can be really trying um, because, you know, now we're 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 in smaller spaces together, um, really having the opportunity to to face how do I currently deal with my emotions and Mm -hmm. how where am I and, and how do I express my needs to someone who doesn't understand what it's like to have an eating disorder or to feel uncomfortable in their body? Um, going to the grocery store, I know, has been really challenging in the last five days. I've, I've talked with a lot of people. There are things that are just not on the shelves, um, you know, and, and for someone who's taken time um, to make a grocery list and and that can be a really anxiety driven activity for someone with an eating disorder Um, make their grocery list go to the store and then come to see that there's not a lot of the things available um you know there are foods that can feel safer than others Mm -hmm. um, when people are kind of in recovery and trying to approach more flexibility in their diet um so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of different things, and I think one of the most important things at this time is to discuss connection. Um, this this illness is already so isolating and right. lonely, um, and some of us are in our own spaces and and we are by ourselves, um, and so that can even heighten the feeling of loneliness and mm-hmm. um, and and not you know thinking okay I'm I don't get to do my normal routine um, and that sort of taking away back to like to like that control again and where Um, can they oh I'm sorry Sabrina go ahead yeah no it's just I think connection is is so important right and that's tough to come by so so for somebody right now that's struggling during this pandemic with an eating disorder needing that connection where can they go for help so our foundation we are located in Denver and we did decide to close um, to just continue ceasing the spread um, of the virus. Um, so we are all working from home where our phone number um, that can still be accessed and you can reach one of our staff members is 303-322-3373. Um, we're, we're still able to touch base via email as well. Um, our email address is info at eatingdisorderfoundation.org. And uh, we have switched our virtual groups, um, pardon, we've switched uh, a few of our groups that used to meet face-to-face into a virtual format. So we currently have three virtual support groups. They're all free. Um, We use Zoom. All that someone would need to do is go to our website, which is www.eatingdisorderfoundation.org, and... um, log in and and click on our support group link through there they'll be able to fill out their information sign a confidentiality waiver and then get a link to to get connected to one of our groups Um, all of our groups are facilitated um, by eating disorder professionals and and so it's a really amazing way for people to get connected 
individuals themselves who are struggling um, and friends and family members. We also have a group for for caregivers who are trying to support their loved one who's home now and and they're you know how do we how do we support the entire community right mm-hmm. now um, and so this through the support groups is um, our first effort and we're continuing to think of different ways to get people involved and connected. Okay, and let's give out that website one more time because you said the link for the support groups is on the website. That's correct. So the the website is www.eatingdisorderfoundation.org. And the phone number is working as well, and that was 303-322-3373. And Sabrina, can you tell me, um, for family members, you know, everybody's in the house right now, they're quarantined together, getting through this pandemic. How can family members help out a loved one with an eating disorder right now? Compassion and patience as best as they possibly can. Um, I'd say the first thing to remember is you have to take care of yourself uh, before you can offer any kind of kindness and compassion. Um, and this goes for every single individual out there um, and caregiver. Um, we really need, all of us need to be so diligent in this time um, to, to just be really patient and understand that there, that there are things right now that we can't Lots of us can't even possibly fathom, um, and we've just got to do this all together. So being really kind and really patient. Open conversations, a good thing to still be having? Yes, I think always. Um, Knowing that things aren't going to get solved and that's okay. Um, You know, this this journey is going to keep going from day to day. All of us are sort of sitting by, um, you know, figuring out the, the best way to move forward. Um, so, yeah, I think open conversation and reaching out, you know, you again, I think I said this earlier, you don't have to be an expert on on eating disorders in order to help someone. Um, we are out here and, and wanting to help and connect and help people understand more. All right. Well, thank you so much for the information. And I know you had a big uh, gala that was coming up, but just like so many other things, it's gotten postponed. Is that right? Yes, it did. That was a hard decision. But yes, for the safety of everyone, um, our gala is now going to be September 25th. So there's more information about that on the website as well. And, and we'll just hope by then that everyone is, is feeling safe and strong and we're able to, to throw events and be together physically. And are tickets available for that right now? They are. They, those also can be found on the website. Yep, there are sponsorship opportunities and, and tickets for sale. And tell me again, what? where is this gala going to happen and what is it? Um, so the gala is is going to be here in Denver at the Four Seasons. Um, this is for Sora Foundation, has been around since 2003, and we are a nonprofit. And because we provide all of our resources, education, support, um and advocacy to get people into the treatment that that they that they need and deserve. Um, this is like a, you know over seventy five percent of of how we we keep running um, and keep our operations going. So um, it's a really wonderful event. We usually highlight um, some incredible professionals in the eating disorder field, and um, yeah, it's a really it's a it's one of the times where I, I'm always really excited. We get to have like three hundred fifty to four hundred people in the room. Um, just helping break away the stigma and shame around eating disorders and mental illness and, and just 
showing how strong our community really is here in Denver. And once again, that uh, gala is coming up September 25th. You can get more information and tickets online. And before you go here, Sabrina, one more time, the phone number and the website for folks that are at home right now, they're going through this pandemic, they're needing help. How can they get in touch with you? Yes, please call the foundation at 303-322-3373 or Check us out on our website, which is www.eatingdisorderfoundation.org. All right, Sabrina Saganga, the program director for the Eating Disorder Foundation. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for some great information. I think this pandemic has caused so many people to look outside of themselves and say, oh my gosh, never thought about the fact that somebody with eating disorders may be struggling. Never thought about how this would be affecting different groups of people. So, you know, one of the things you can always do with Mile High Magazine, love to have you share it on social media. It will be a podcast. It will be available on your station's website, and there's always links that you can share it. And if you're wanting to get in touch with somebody at the Eating Disorder Foundation, once again, eatingdisorderfoundation.org. Go to their website. You can always call them as well. That phone number is 303-322-3373. And as Sabrina was mentioning, there are virtual support groups. So maybe you have a group that you normally go out and meet with and you were thinking, man, I'm not going to be able to get that kind of support that I need. And you're going through some of the stresses that Sabrina was mentioning. This is a great opportunity. So go to the website or give them a call at 303-322-3373. Hang in there. I know this is such a tough time for all of us going through a pandemic, going through a quarantine, feeling like you're alone, but you are not alone. Reach out. Help is there for you. I'm Melissa Moore. It is Mile High Magazine. Like I said, this show always available on a podcast forum. You can share it on social media. Play it again. Go to the station's website if you want to hear it again. That's an easy thing to do as well. Go have a blessed day. Be kind. Show a lot of grace and compassion and we will get through all of this together. I'm Melissa Moore. It's Mile High Magazine. Thank you for spending this Sunday with me. I sure appreciate your time.